Innovation should describe the characteristics of the way we work. It should be about how we do things rather than what we've done at any particular time or who's doing it. Welcome to Structural Shifts by Aperture, a bi-weekly show that radically reimagines the future of work, society, and business. We take a devil's advocate approach to exploring the massive shifts transforming our economies and our world, and our guests are not afraid to challenge the status quo. To learn more about Aperture, visit aperturehub.co. In the last episode, we talked about the differences between invention and innovation. Today, your host, Ben Robinson, continues the innovation conversation with Bill Fisher and Ian Stewart from the International Institute for Management Development, IMD. Bill is Professor of Innovation Management, and Ian, who you may remember from a previous episode of this podcast, he co-founded Wired and is executive-in-residence at IMD. The three of them sit down to dive deep on some very provocative questions, including how reliable will strategy be in the future? What if tactics were more important than strategy? Are firms obsolete? What about nation states? Can the future of companies be a model for the future of countries? How is the nature of competitive advantage changing? And how are we redefining quality to meet the needs of consumers and the marketplace? For example, does an MBA program actually need to be two years long? You will also learn the three keys to success to building teams that drive big innovation. Here's a hint. Bill likes to say that polite teams get polite results. And you will learn what Bill and Ian are bullish about. Now onto Ben's conversation with Bill and Ian. We are at IMD to interview Bill, and Ian is here to make sure I get the very best out of this podcast. So it's going to be a joint interview and more of a conversation than anything. But starting with teams, is team a noun or is it a verb? So it's Bill? a verb. Okay. <laughs> Without a doubt. Incidentally, thank you for coming over here. Thank you for inviting me, us, to be part of this. This is, uh, this is, this is great fun. I always forget to do that. So yeah, thank you for coming on the podcast. So, so I, I think, you know, when we talk about innovation, the idea is to make it, no matter what part of innovation we're talking about, to make it a verb, not a noun. So a noun describes somebody else doing it, some other department, some other, de- you know, and I think that it's too important as a, as a, as a quality of life, uh, organizational life, individual life, to be a uh, uh, pigeonholed in somebody's group. So I think it's a verb. I think um, uh, Amy Edmondson at the Harvard Business School talks about teaming rather than teams. And I think that's a, a good way to, to, be, to, to begin. And the reason you think it's a verb rather than a noun is, is because it's, it can never be passive, right? The, so the formation think, of a team, the building of a team, the management of a no, team. No, I think that innovation should describe the characteristics of the way we work. It should be about how we do things rather than what we've done at any particular time or who's doing it. I think we want everybody ideally to be, to think of themselves as potentially involved in the innovation process. So it shouldn't belong to any department or group or section or what have you. And I think it ought to characterize a, a way of working that involves curiosity and you know autonomy and the ability to experiment. And Imagine Ian's had the same experience that I have. You know, sometimes you have teams that just gel and they perform amazingly well. And other times mm-hmm. you think you put together a similar composition of skills and it just doesn't gel. So what's 
what is the key to team performance and the composition of team and in your experience? So I think I think teams are too casually um, regarded. My, my, my sense is that teams should be fit for purpose. And if you think about industry development, I know we'll talk about industry and arenas later. If you talk about industry development as um, an S-curve, then in the middle of the S-curve where you know you know what you're doing and you know how to do it, then I think teams ought to be run in one way and, and probably harmonious and people get together and they gel quickly and they, 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 they know each other. But when you're trying to jump from one S-curve to another, when you're trying to invent the future, then I think teams have to be very different. And, and I often think that contentious teams, teams that are staffed with uh, people who know a lot of stuff and who, and who disagree with one another, is probably the better way to go. Yeah, and you, I mean, you, t- you take aim at what you call polite teams right right? Polite teams get polite results (laughs) yeah yeah it's almost like the antithesis of polite teams teams that you know are combative right yes but but not but not destructive i mean i think what you want to do i think they have to be led differently i think you know i often think of 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 teams in the middle of an s-curve being led by an orchestra conductor who stands there and sort of you know everybody knows what they're doing and his his or her job is to keep the the the, the 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 movement going in the in the right direction and the right speed, but crossing the S curve is more like a boxing referee, right? Not 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 you know allowing allowing contentious discussion because I want to get every brain cell yeah. I can possibly get. So allowing contentious challenge to take place without being corrosive or destructive. You cite the research that shows there's a sort of inverse correlation between the size of teams and their performance. Yes. And so, which I, you know, I think intuitively feels correct. Yeah. And, and also, like, it's unbelievable how much research went into that yes. before you cited. But that then poses the question of, if you're going to run a large organization, how do you avoid running, you know, having large, so, being composed of large teams? Yeah, so the, the, the research, just to be clear, the research you were talking about was a piece of work done by three fellows from uh, Northwestern University last year. It appeared in Nature, I think, yep. or Science. Um, <clears throat> nature, and, I think. Nature, and, and, and it's an amazing piece of research. It is, yeah. Um, with, with wonderful data, large data samples, et cetera, you know, really spectacular piece of work. But it's about invention, not about innovation, okay? And I think that's important to clarify. Um, so it's at the very front end of, of, of the change process. And I think what we see there, the, for me, the thing that was so interesting in their results was that at, at some size, team size over five, once you start bringing, the, every person you bring in reduces monotonically the, the, the level of novelty in the expected outcome. So that's extraordinary. I mean, I mean, the more people, the more conservative we, be, we, we become. And they argue, in fact, they have some interesting data that argues that it's a function of the way that larger teams work, you know, and, and also the expectations that larger teams are going to deliver different results. And so people are responding to the audience as well. What clearly comes out of that is that smaller, if you have your preference, if you're able to do it, Smaller teams are better than larger teams, and and they have more autonomy as well. So I think that that's that's you know rule one about thinking about teaming is can I get how small can I do this and how end to end can it be 
and how autonomous can I can can we fashion this this thing? Interestingly, I found the same thing on boards. Yes, um, with the same parallel thoughts. Uh, the less change an organization is going through, whether it's for-profit or non-profit, the more it can afford large boards. The more it's involved in something which requires substantial change, and I'm on the board of an NGO at the moment, which is seeing its funding sources around the world radically change as governments fund less and um, private sector sources, foundations, family offices are funding more in this particular area, and they have zero experience in this space. So trying to understand how to change the fundraising process, changing actually the management team uh, to enable them to do it has been a struggle. And uh, what I often find on these things is that the first thing that a good chairman does is break things down to smaller groups so that there's only three to five people handling it. So there was a small group of us that went out to hire the new CEO. Mm -hmm. There was another small group that had to um, restructure how funding works. It's a very interesting process. I think it's exactly the same on boards as it is in innovation teams yeah. within companies. Yeah. I, I, I've come away over the last couple of years thinking that end-to-end um, -end responsibility and smallness are really critically, and autonomy, are critically important characteristics of teaming. So it's We'll come back in a second because we want to yeah. talk about... But, but just one thing. Sure. Okay, contextually, right? Because yeah. when you want to do something big, if we want to run the day-to-day -day operations of, a, of, a, of an activity in a mature industry where nobody's right. thinking, then that, that, those rules may not apply at all. Yeah. So we're, we're going to come back to talk about the, whether a, the structure of a firm is still as relevant as it was because, you know, the... the you know, with the the, the sort of very notion right. of a firm is you know built on this idea of you know uh, you know high transaction costs. Right. So, so we'll come back to that. But if the future of if optimal sort of performance is achieved through very small teams, does that mean that organizations just become a composite of you know lots and lots of small teams? Then is that and how easy is that to actually well, orchestrate? So, so the I I I have a long-term relationship with Hire, the Chinese yeah. home appliance company, and that's the direction they're going in. And they're going in that way. They're going in that direction because their industry is on the verge of a major upheaval around hyperconnectivity in the in the kitchen. And um, and they've never done this before. They've never produced content. They've never. They used to talk to the their customer typically once every 15 years, you know, yeah. now it's five or 10 times a day. Yeah. So, so they need to be really different. And what they understand, uh -huh. I think, is that there's so much opportunity to do di different things, but they don't know, they've never done this before. So what they're doing is they are um, subdividing um, into small groups that are autonomous, that are self-investing as well, which reduces the risk to the organization as a whole. And and they're allowing people to take chances, and not and and they're. I think the belief is that, you know, we're going to be in the right place at the right time, not because we're smarter, but because we're taking more chances, and and most of the chances aren't going to turn out well, but a couple will, and then we'll be uniquely positioned to move forward. So I just want to drop anchor if if you're okay with this to on on higher because. So I've been to the Drucker Forum. You've, you've you've brought them there in the past, right. and it's a fascinating right. case study. Right. But I think it. You know, there's there's several things that I'm interested in about. One of which is like how replicable is that, and in in other other examples right. of companies that are doing the same thing. But the first thing is how do they manage consistency with that level of autonomy? Because you know we're talking about home appliances, so these are not things that you know 
would want to be right. breaking every day. Right. And right. so how do they manage that? So, so these, these small teams are located on platforms that are overseen by people who are more internally focused than externally focused. So the, 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 the small teams are completely externally focused, but then that behavior and activity is mediated by the role of the platform, which is sort of the bridge between the external and the internal world and does the, the translation. So that to me is the way they go about consistency. And they have on that platform, they have a number of stakeholders involved. So you're all using the same connectivity systems, you know, you're all so that there's that so that you're not doing one thing. One of the interesting things about this is that all of a sudden logistics becomes a much more important player in the conversations than they did in the past. And that is because you're no longer buying separate pieces of home appliances, but you're buying a suite of home appliances to talk to one another. You're, you're spending a lot more money and, you, and you, when you walk in that kitchen as a customer, you wanna push the button and everything works, which means it's gotta all be delivered on time as well. So, I mean, you know, you're seeing very different internal players participating as well as so, somewhat bizarre external players. In answering the first part of your question, Ben, I think it depends on the size of the organization and the dynamism of the environment in which it works. If there's a great deal of change going on or a great deal of change necessary and or there's a deal of a level of disruption because of changes in the way either the context of the business is formed or the um, competitors in the environment, I think that level of change requires structures and systems that allow for it. If you're dealing with something that is relatively static, and that's less and less true these days, all of the indications are that the life cycle of companies is dropping. Um, but if you're dealing in a sector which is um, relatively static, then you can afford to build a deep process which fine-tunes, which eliminates, which molds down to a point where it's as efficient as it can be to run one set of processes. Now, something like that, and I'm thinking of large Japanese companies, for example, doesn't react to change terribly well, um, isn't able to adjust, isn't able to innovate. Um, but if, if you're in an industry that ha doesn't have that level of disruption yet because they probably all will at some point, uh, then I think it's okay to have a, an older type of structure. But I, I think it's very clear that the trends on company life cycles and industry life cycles and the level of change that's taking place through application of technology at all sorts of different levels in, in different companies at all parts of the value chain um, suggests that some level of management of innovation plus reliance on core processes, I think, is inevitable. Yeah, the, I guess the tension between the exploitation tap and the... You know, and the um, exploration tap, right, which is, you know, always trying to, and you said it, depending on where you're on the S-curve, right, which one is taking precedence. The, just to go back to higher, so in, in, the, in this, you, you talk about the sort of rising importance of logistics and, and the sort of platform that underpins it. And I suppose another case study is, is Amazon, right, which we have this idea of API first, right, so even the internal teams interface with other internal teams through APIs, which actually makes it possible then for to, to for those internal units to be exposed to, to to external parties, a bit like you know AWS was. So is that is that how higher is built yep. a certain way, which is you know you can quickly change the interface from internal to external. You know the same way as if you wanted to plug out a higher appliance, you could plug in another appliance because they have to be built in ways you know on a platform that will allows interoperability. I think actually what happens is the way in which by by creating autonomous and and work units to the to, to the extent that they are at least they're responsible for their own functions 
everyone has a line of sight to the customer. And as a result, they, they take what's going on in the marketplace much more seriously than they might if they're buried under levels of bureaucracy and, and, and really don't see the customer at all. And so I, I, th I think I've been to the Drucker Forum twice, maybe three right. times. And each year you bring Haya back to speak. To, <laughs> no, no, I'm not going to say because they're yeah. great. I mean, it's, it's really, it's a, yeah. it's, um, it's a phenomenal story. And it's so, um, you know, the, it's so sort of um, innovative in its business model. But the fact that you bring them back and you don't bring other examples back, is that because there, there aren't that many examples still? This is, they're still, you know, they're still trailblazing. There are a fair number of organizations that are experimenting with change. But, but I have not yet seen any, any organization that's gone as far as higher uh, for as long a period of time. This is about a 35-year continuous story, right? And with 70,000 people. So it's, it's, it's yeah. sort of, you know, I mean, it, and, and, and yet there are plenty of organizations that are really experimenting in different ways with autonomy, but not on that scale, not for that long, and not, I think, not that comprehensively. It'd be interesting to take a look, closer look at Alphabet and, and Amazon. They've not been going at it for anywhere near as long. That's the impressive thing with Hire. The longevity of the process is really quite something. But clearly Alphabet and Amazon, in their own ways, have approached the same problem in, in parallel ways, trying to work out how to be continually innovative whilst maintaining the core business and trying to build a set of um, internal processes that keep it feeling and acting and, and operating as a single entity, a single corporation, whilst creating these new services and businesses. So... I mean, it's a fun area. It's a really, really fun area. It's, it's, it's the, my favorite bit of business at the moment is, is this frontier between trying to run something and trying to build something because they're not always the same thing. And, and the boundaries between these organizations blur because, you know, where is your, where, where's your focus and, where, and where's your allegiance and where's the, where's the center of activity uh, uh, right. occurring? And that's interesting. And the other thing that I have always been fascinated by um, at higher, and it's probably because I gotten to know the the chairman John Ray Min so well, but he talks a lot about giving up control, right? Not amassing control, but giving up control because that's the only way the organization can move responsively fast enough, you know. And 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 um and that's interesting to watch. What to watch an organization trust its people to get on with the job. So in terms of lessons learned, I mean you know one of the fascinating things is, you know, home appliances, this is quite a capital intensive Yes. business yes and so i can get how you can sort of you know you can devolve down autonomy for decision making like, because you want you know you want the individual units to be quite responsive to to cust changing customer demands and so on. but how do you devolve down capital allocation on that scale that that's a big problem and 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 it means probably and I'm watching some organizations try to deal with that. It means it means that the sizes of these organizations are arguably going to be much larger than the, than the small groups that are interacting on the frontier of the client-facing type of thing. Um, but it doesn't mean you can't do it. It doesn't no. mean that a group of people can't run um, a, a large asset-intensive operation within within a manufacturing framework or run the manufacturing framework itself. I mean, that can be done. It requires a different degree. It's a different size and it's a different degree of involvement and engagement. I think it's also a different approach to risk. If, if one's trying to allocate capital in areas that are less well-known by the existing management team, I, I mean, I, I spend my time these days often um, going backwards and forwards between 
French organizations and American organizations, or whether they're Canadian or, or US. And there's a very different approach to a decision about whether to invest in either a process or, or new technology. The French companies, and forgive me for French listeners if I'm generalizing to a point that um, is offensive, the French companies tend to go more into the reports and details and some, they want it to be absolutely certain if they possibly can before they make the decision. The American companies will want to be sure that we're more or less triangulated that this is the direction and then they'll throw money and people at it and see what happens. Uh, and I think that, 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 that different approach, the ability to take on investments with higher risk and less certainty, I think is fundamental to very large organizations being able to allocate capital to their internal operations. So I've spent time, obviously, as, a, as an investor, as a venture capitalist, and I think that some of those attitudes, um, some of those approaches to, to being comfortable with risk and trying to judge what are the levels of risk you're willing to accept. Is it more the team? Is it more the tech? Is it more the goal? Are the processes involved appropriate given whatever their, um, the context is for what they're trying to do? And then deciding, okay, you know, 150 million goes on this based on less information that some companies might be willing to accept. I think that's, that's essential for this type of change at this type of scale in large organizations trying to stay relevant. So is that, is that what would determine the winners in the future, which is, you know, if we think about the changing nature of, com of competitive advantage, is it that ability to deploy capital better and faster, or will they be disrupted by companies that are more modular in, and more networked? So, so here we get into the difference between industries and arenas, right? Yes. Right? So industries have, and, 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 you know, as a preface, I would say, if you reflect on the way we think about strategic thinking, it's based on industries, industry analysis, Michael Porter, five forces and yeah. things like that. And industries are asset defined. So all automobile companies pretty much look alike and all banks pretty much look alike. And they all have the same assets and the same talent. But there's a couple things going on now, I think, that are really changing that. One is that we're no longer as interested in the industry, in the asset-defined rivalries as we are in the outcomes, the customer experience. So for, for 100 years, we've been, when we think about strategy, we've been thinking about the inputs. And, and, now, and now we're thinking more about the outputs. And I think that's a function of uh, business model innovation um, and, and, the, and the ability of a whole generation of um, entrepreneurs who have decided that they don't have to have those assets or they don't have to have those engineers. They can go out and, and, and play in the customer experience game and, and access the assets and talent that they need some other way. And they'll differentiate themselves on something within the business model that nobody else, that everybody's been aware of for a long time, nobody else has taken on. And so I think that the nature of the way we categorize firms is changing. And so is the right way to categorize firms as aggregators and platforms and long tail then? Is that, is that the way to think about it? So they're either, they're either you know, aggregating the work of other uh, companies and they're consumer facing or they're sharing autonomies of scale, sorry, sharing network effects across their platform where they're not necessarily customer facing, but they are sharing between all the different sort of tenants of the platform, the network effects, or are they the long tail suppliers to the platform? So we start outside in rather than inside out. And we start with the customer experience 
And then we think about all of the different ways that we can affect that customer experience or change the customer experience at the present time. And I don't know if this is because it's that it's it's in the middle of, or the beginning of this transition, or it, or it'll always be this way. There are some still some asset specific providers who do everything, and and um, well known brands who are participating in the arenas, as Rita McGrath calls it, the arenas that characterize creation of customer experience. But there are also some aggregators and some modular. Assemblers, I guess those would be aggregators who are who are doing the same thing with, with a completely different balance sheet in terms of the way in which they they, they, they go to market. You know, I, I, while I'm saying this, I'm thinking that we've seen modularization around for a long time. It's not new. The the, the missing piece, I think, has been the business model. Uh, which is which is re- re- really tied it together. So uh, Alex Osterwald, who lives you know just a just a short distance from here, really deserves a lot of credit for for call, reminding us, calling our attention to the fact that the business model is really an important way to think about innovation, and and we we lost sight of that somewhere along the line. I think. Yeah, I think the business model is the most important thing to get right. It's uh, you know it all. all you know, we'll come in to a second right. to, to the discussion of strategy versus innovation, but I think business model trumps both because if you get the business model right, then it allows you to innovate at scale and it allows you to execute the strategy. So it's, I would argue the business model is now more important than it ever has been. I think it also depends on, on where you are in the value chain for an industry uh, or an arena for that matter um, and where your skills and, and uh, competitive advantage lie. Yeah, even in the car industry, where you have a whole bunch of people facing the customer on the B2C side with variations on a number of different themes with SUVs dominating these days, at the back end, you've still got a very limited number of suppliers of, for example, gearboxes, where a few companies really dominate and they do one thing really, really well and they customize it to the different customers. But it's essentially a very few companies supplying to a great many B2C facing car companies and car brands. So I think, I think it depends a little bit upon where you are and where you sit, sit in the system. I, I wanted to address another question you asked very early on about um, whether uh, hire in its development of platforms facilitates interoperability. And I think there's a big difference between the platforms that a company creates for itself, for its own innovation and for its range of products and services. And Bill mentioned, if you have a, if you start to buy from a company which has its own system, and of course we know Apple in this space, um, not with consu- uh, not with um, washing machines, but yes, with consumer objects. It becomes very hard to leave after a while because the system works very well uh, in amongst the different objects and tools and machines that they sell. The same will be true, I'm sure, of Hire. But I'm sure, as with Apple, I'm not. I'd, I'd love to hear from Bill about this. Hire probably doesn't make great efforts to ensure that their systems interoperate with other competitors in the Chinese marketplace because that's a source of competitive advantage. So we see we see certain benefits of network effect within ecosystems that we control. We don't necessarily want other people's devices um, to be able to interoperate because then we lose our control of the customer. So I think I think it's interesting to see what's happening, and I, and I think there are efforts to create standards to allow IoT systems to interoperate. It'll be very interesting from a competitive landscape point of view to see how that goes. 
Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, I was trying to think about how that would work. And my sense is that certainly Hire does have its own system of connectivity. And, and, um, um, and within the domestic Chinese market, that's the one that is, um, uh, is in use. And I, I think it's been, it's probably the market leader. Outside of the Chinese system, the reality is, is that you have other organizations like Amazon and Google and, uh, um, Apple, who have who who have a head start with their systems, because they particularly Amazon's Echo and the like, because they've been around for a longer time. So I think it would behoove higher moving into the domestic um, uh, North American market to make sure that their equipment works with the standards. You know, with the, you know how many how many of these devices do I want to talk to, so that their system. And what I don't know. It's a good, interesting question is, would they have a special micro-enterprise that would take responsibility for that system? Hmm. Or would the existing micro-enterprise um, adapt to, to, to fit both systems? And I, I don't know how that works. Um, I, and, and I don't know who would make that choice. Whether the, I, think, the, I think the way the choice would be made is whether who moves the fastest mm -hmm. within higher. But isn't, isn't so this, I'm really pleased that you raised it because I think it's, you know, it's worth delving into this a bit more, but isn't, that notion of you know switching costs, which is really what you're talking about, which is you know you mm -hmm. you, you you deliberately make things proprietary so that it's difficult for for your for your suppliers, your customers to switch off. Isn't that a very sort of industrial age concept that will gradually disappear? Because the source of or the of nature of competitive advantage is changing. I mean, you've said everything has to be customer first, ecosystem first, and such that the most Successful companies will be though that those that generate the highest level of network effects and those that externalize those network effects with their ecosystem, such that the idea of, of introducing heavy switching costs is almost you know the antithesis of how you will increasingly create and sustain competitive advantage. You know, I, I, I if I can just make a quick observation, I used to do a lot of work in the telecom industry, and I remember how major telecom companies would be afraid to become the dumb pipe, you know, yeah. that, that they, and nobody wanted to be the dumb pipe. I now hear automobile companies say that because in autonomous drive vehicles, if the audio um, uh, connectivity is done through an existing system like Amazon or like uh, uh, Google or, or whoever, then who actually owns the customer? And and when I when I have if I have an Amazon Echo on in my home and I then go out into my garage, do I really want to change systems? And how interoperable do I want to be? So it's not in Amazon's interest to make it easier for anybody to. But, but in in a way, isn't that isn't that sort of Canute like to resist that because. You know, it's almost necessarily necessarily we you know we'll prefer some channels to other channels, and we won't want to have different proprietary channels for our car, for our bank, for so we we'll probably necessarily move to horizontal channels. And isn't the trick to make yourself desirable, even if you don't interface directly to the customer, i.e., to be the you know the car that people choose, even though they might interface through through Echo, the bank that people might choose, even though they might interface through WhatsApp. I, I think that's I think that's the crux of a competitive question. Um, if you think that there is going to be the potential for a horizontal um, network effect integrated system across multiple brands, then you target that. But if you think you can add enough value, and remember, it's not about optimum value; it's about enough value to your customers 
to keep them loyal and keep them within your system as much as possible, then the rent you can charge for that, the amount of um, margin you can generate from that is going to be enough to sustain you for a great many years, even if ultimately you think you're going to get knocked out, as you say, canoed against the waves. And I'm not sure. I think this is a classic problem that, that every company and every industry faces at some point, open or shut. Uh, and I don't think it's a given that everything's going to be open. I really don't. It's, so it's an interesting exercise in legacy thinking. What's legacy yeah, yeah. thinking and what isn't, right? right. And, and, and it, it, it also calls into question the enduring power of brands. Is there enduring yes. power of brands or will brands um, fade in um, what, what, what Charlie Fine would call fast clock speed industries where there's a lot of turnover, you know, where brand, brands have re- prospered in slow change industries, would they also prosper in, in fast? Can you make them do that? And if you can't, then how fast do you move to get out of that constraint, right? And, and I think that's a really interesting question about, so, so the way I sort of see platforms working is if I'm, if I'm doing a proprietary uh, system that allows my products to be connected, whether they're home appliances or not, do I encourage another internal microenterprise to try to do ones with a broader set of connectivity, you know, maybe common standards among others and see which one and see how the market reacts. But I, but I think what's interesting about Hire is they, they, they built an, an organization or business model, let's call it that, that allows for very fast mm-hmm. innovation. Mm-hmm. So arguably that's a business model where they can keep up with, the, the, you know, changing customer expectations. But most companies kind of, most companies, I guess, need to, to insource innovation from other people. Right. And so I don't know if Hire can innovate fast enough, particularly as it expands into more, right. into you know, a larger arena. Right. But, but isn't, isn't, that the, isn't that the question, which is, you know, how your, extent, your need to work with others depends on you know, how fast your end market moves. And to talk about something else that you, talk about, that you mentioned in your writing, you think this is the sort of new age of Edison. Are there slow-moving industries anymore? I mean, you know, you could argue that electricity was just, it was a slow-moving industry, but that's un, undergoing massive change, yeah, yeah, right? Um, yeah. you know, so, what is a slow-moving industry, and can anybody afford not to, you know, adopt an ecosystem model? So, it, 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 so I think there are industries that wish they were slow-moving. <laughs> yeah. you know? um, but, yeah. but, 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 my sense is. If you if you say there are no slow moving industries anymore, which which I, I don't think we're there yet, but I think we're 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 in, in the not too distant future, yep. and and we're moving into unknown areas of rivalry where we have broad arenas with many different types of approaches in that. I sort of think that strategy no longer becomes reliable, dependable, Ooh, right? Not enough and, time, and and that and that strategy becomes the ex-post rationalization of successful or unsuccessful tactics. As it sometimes already is. Yeah, well, yeah. A bit like every, entre- every successful entrepreneur you know, post-rationalizes the story of the firm and, right. and the fact that everything was you know, pre-planned and not down to luck. And, right, yeah. Right. Yeah. and every country writes its own history. You only have to compare the English, the British, and the Chinese histories of certain parts of Southeast Asia to see. What have we managed as if tactics were more important than strategy? And I think that, in a sense, we're doing that. To, 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 so I agree. I think higher certainly is. Yeah. And I think that that would that changes the way in which we approach things. It certainly changes to go back to teaming. 
If we take a look at the last hundred years of, of industrial history, that most people, most organizations and most generations of managers have remained on the same S-curve. And now all of a sudden we have this acceleration of change. And for me, the, the, the most important piece of that is that the, dis the ruptures between S-curves become a larger part of my managerial career. So, and in those ruptures, I have to act differently. So, if I if I if I move quickly from a world where strategy was 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 worthwhile, because I had a long expectation of harvesting that strategy, to a point where I have to continually move from one S curve to another, I think I need to act differently. And I don't know, you know, every one of those S curves is the unknown. It's no longer the uncertain. Right, we, we the, the strategy is the province of the uncertain. We we sort of know the way the game is played. We know who our customers are. We know who our rivals are. We know how to do this. But if I'm going into the unknown, the if I'm going to brand new industries or brand new customer experiences, then then all that decision making becomes unreliable. Yeah. There's not much point in having a three-year or five-year strategy plan if you have to adjust it every eighteen or, so, or twelve months. <laughs> right. Every three months. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I had dinner a couple of years ago with Tim Brown from um, um, IDEO, and he said one of the things that is changing in his business, which is the design business, is that the, they're losing the middle of projects. So they have beginnings and ends, but you know, but there's less and less time in the middle to do things because of customer pressure on time to market. That changes the the, the way in which you do everything about a project. So. Taking that same idea of losing the middle, is that not what's happening to strategy, which is it's sort of bifurcating between, on the one hand, you know, setting the company vision yes. and mission and, you know, trying to manage the company culture yeah. and put in place the right business model, which is, which is stuff that doesn't change very often, versus the polar opposite, which is the rest of strategy just becomes introducing as few constraints as possible and allowing the company to be as innovative as possible. Yeah, so, so, so my, yes, so my, my, my view is that change is continuous and accelerating, but in corporate life, organizational life is episodic and remains episodic. So they're out of, they're always going to be out of sync. The problem is how do we speed up the, the nature of organizational life so that it's more um, in, in, in tune with, 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 with the outside, outside world, change in the outside world. And for me, that means that we have to, and this is not, unique, this is another lesson from higher, is we have to resist linearity and sequentiality in the way in which we work. I, this is a parenthesis which takes us out to a different field, but I would argue the same is true for country governance as it is for corporate governance. I think a country like China that still does five-year plans struggles um, when things change very, very quickly in large ways. How repeatable a process can innovation be? Because I mean, you wrote a book called Idea Hunter, mm -hmm. which is the – forgive me for sort of oversimplifying it, but the – it's a great book. It's a great it's, book. It's a great book, and it cannot be simplified in a simple line. But the this idea that you, there is a formula, right, for continually coming up with yes. good ideas, and which by extension sort of means that the the same company or the same individual can continue to be right. Um, right. Yeah. Design thinking, lean startup, things of this nature, are procedural. 
and and I think what they are is procedural in a way that that reduces the linearity in the innovation process. So the old innovation funnel, right? Yep. The old innovation funnel was was com a completely inside out. It was all about yep. our our numbers and our right rather than the customer experience. Completely inside out was completely linear in the way in which the stage gating processes worked. And and for me the biggest danger was that or the biggest cost was that learning took place at the end. And what I think we're doing with uh, lean startup and, um, and 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 design thinking and the variance th thereof is we're trying to move to a um, slightly less linear process where we do more testing along the way, prototyping, prototyping, da 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 da. And and so the learning is moved forward. We don't have to wait until the end of the experiment. So my, my sense is that. What in the face of increased unknowns, which is the shorter S curves, more more ruptures between, we are moving to a more experimental model, and the, of, of decision making. And that experimental model involves much more testing, faster testing, and quicker learning, and then the application of that as we go along. But still a process, you know. Recently, we interviewed Mark Gruber for the podcast, and. His argument is that the tool set that you're referring to, you know, design thinking, lean startup, is missing one tool, which is the where to play framework. Do you also agree that it's really important that it's sort of, you know, ex ante to decide where you're going to play? So I think prototyping is a, is a, is a, pre, prototyping is can we do it? Prototyping, does anyone care if we do it? In a sense, that's market. What's, what, what's that term? I never heard of prototyping. Prototyping, right? <clears throat> okay. Yeah. It, it's the minimal viable representation of the idea tested in a marketplace. So it, it's an attempt to try to see if anyone cares about this. And in, 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 in a sense, that's some insights into whether or not there's a market for this, whether whether we should be playing in this in in this space. And the beauty of prototyping or prototyping is that it gives you better feedback because you're talking about something tangible rather than something abstract. So my, my sense is that all of these things, moving from abstraction to tangibility, quick testing and all that, are attempts to reduce the impact of legacy linearity and sequentiality. I have this worry sometimes um, as we lose the middle, as we're constantly working on uh, customer value innovation and we're constantly trying to catch up with production to meet those um, new expectations of our customers. Whether that lack of middle and um, lack of longevity of process reduces quality and reduces longevity of product and service. There is a clear trend in place where customers don't, don't want mass-produced products and they they want things that are more locally sourced, higher quality. Almost like the end of the end consumer brings with it the end of the mass-produced customers. So, I, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't see any reason inherent in that process why quality should be reduced. It's not as if we're doing it in a um, half-baked fashion. It's, it, it's, we're, we're still trying to build the, the right quality. And the interesting thing, I think, but the interesting thing that, that comes out of this is that what if the customer decides that quality is not 
an important issue in their purchase decision? What, what if, in fact, or the quality that we're producing is unnecessary? I mean, I think that what we're seeing... The best example is in fashion, right? Fast fashion over the last 15 Absolutely. years. People have been happy to have things that fall apart in three months because then they can get something new because yes. it costs them nothing. Yes, yes. Uh, actually, actually, I, I, I spoke with a firm who said that, who makes fast fashion <coughs> and whose largest market is in the city in um, London because they have um, wealthy, um, well-paid young typically men who have no domestic skills who buy a shirt once and throw it away because it's so inaffordable. So, you know, it, it, in a sense, so I think that I think that we have a definition of quality that is a legacy definition of quality that needs to be re-examined. Re, 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 re I'm, listen, I'm not advocating bad quality, okay? But what I am- Or throwing away shirts after single use. <laughs> what I am advocating is rethinking the nature of quality and what's what's required. We see a movement away from long-term, particularly in North America, two-year MBA programs to shorter MBA programs. Is that a reduction in quality? Well, we don't think so. You know, we think that that we're redefining the nature of this experience in many ways. And you see that a growing rise in certificate programs. You know, I think that quality like anything else is, is constantly up for redefinition. I'm so pleased you brought up the topic of MBAs. Yeah. <laughs> because um, in a world where innovation matters more than strategy and where experimentation matters more than knowledge. Right. Should, you know, is it worth people taking two years out of their life to study in a classroom? I don't know what the right time period is, right? But I'm a great believer that knowing more is better than knowing less, right? And 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 I'm even, though, even though you you continually <laughs> write in your in your articles that the experimentation trumps knowledge. Yeah, because you know what? There, there, there's experimentation I think, also leads to knowledge. Yes, yes, yes. I I, I think Touché. maybe <laughs> I, I think what we ought to be doing in in the so last year I took. 95 MBAs to Shenzhen, um, yep. a colleague and I did. And it was a great experience. We spent five days there. It was about learning, not knowing, okay? So that, so I think more and more of, of, of education is about how do you engender the curiosity to seek things out? And then how do you learn? How do you, you know, what do you do to learn more? Because in the future, Going back to the rapidity of change in the S-curves in the future, what you know will be less valuable than how you learn. And is that what you are increasingly teaching then? Yes, how, to, I, I how, think to, so. how to learn rather yes, than... Yes, I think so. I think what we're providing is frameworks and, um, and vocabularies that make it easier to learn and make it easier to share learning, uh, scalable learning. But, but, I, but I think that more and more those frameworks are around with or have change at the center rather than stability at the center so i'm just i'm looking around at your <laughs> bookshelf here so we're in, we're in bill's office and it's and as you can imagine uh, uh, you would expect of a professor's office it's full of books uh -huh. and i'm just trying to count how many of these books have the word firm in them and my question to you is is the firm still a irrelevant concept or is it obsolete because the firm was all about grouping people under one entity, A, because transaction yeah. costs were high, and yeah. two, because it was about systemizing production. And yeah. so, so you needed to organize tasks into repeatable 
organized work into repeatable tasks with formal hierarchies and all of, everything we've talked about so far suggests that all every notion I just mentioned there is obsolete. So is the firm obsolete? Uh, it's a good question. I, I think... You're going to have to throw away I, many books if it is. I think in the spirit of how we started this conversation, organizing is not obsolete. Correct. Okay? Yep, yep. Teaming is not obsolete. The construct of the firm um, may in fact need to be re-examined. And, early, and, and earlier you talked about how we think about organizational size and how that's that's changing. And I think that's really true. And, and that's probably true in the, in the nature of the firm as well. The, the motivation for the firm, the corporate nature that tends to be associated instinctively with the firm, uh, all of those things probably need to be rethought and redefined and re-examined, questioned. But I'm not sure that organizing itself is a bad idea. So we've nearly got to the point where we delved into the Chinese question. We've, we've, we've constantly held ourselves back, but I think we're ready now. And, but maybe let's start through the prism of the idea of the nation state, which is you know, if, if the firm is, needs radical overhaul, does the nation state require the same? Ian? <laughs> <laughs> so I guess, uh, referring back to my earlier comment about the difficulty of having five-year plans in a world that changes every three to 12 months, I, I think the general answer is yes to a degree. I think a lot of the things that still glue people together, um, culture and attitude and history remain, and they remain important. I think what's interesting today is, is that the nature of citizens' relationship to their country is changing, and it depends on where they are. Um, I've said in, uh, in public before that I think that the relationship between capital cities of a lot of the world, certainly Western nations, but including places like Beijing and Tokyo, um, less so Jakarta, bear more resemblance to each other. These places bear more resemblance to each other often than they do to their own hinterlands. Yep, yep. And I think, therefore, that um, the term nation state is interesting because I think there's a difference between how large capital cities, large um, um, busy cities, whether they're officially the capital or not, are very, very different to the countryside from whence they came. You, you only have to look at the Swiss referendums to see how different the voting is between cantons in the center of the country and the cantons that touch the outside world. But also, if you look at the voting for Brexit, you look at the voting for many um, major um, uh, cultural and or um, country changes over the last 10 years, I'm thinking of the US as well as UK, but also Venezuela and, and Brazil and elsewhere, we have a dichotomy taking place. We have a dichotomy appearing very strongly between big cities and the rest of the country. So I think that's one dynamic which requires change in governance of the country's concern. But it's also about the relationship between countries across the board. I, I'm, I've never been, a, I haven't been for a long time, a big fan of things like the United Nations. Um, but the purpose of the original League of Nations uh, made sense. And I wonder now within the context of the changes that are taking place inside countries, whether we need better relationships across countries. If higher is the future of the firm, you know, very large conglomerations of large autonomous independent units that, that collaborate, that are brought together through logistics and data mm -hmm. and so on. Is that the future of, of countries? Because in, in some ways, you know, is Switzerland the kind of model for, you know, a modern country? Because it's, that's really what Switzerland seems to do quite well, right? Which is this, you know, thin federal layer that kind of coordinates activities and then a lot of power and responsibility and autonomy devolved down to communes and 
And if that's the case, it would seem we're moving in the opposite direction as as you know, the United States becomes more insular and um, I don't know. That's just as a as a thought. Is if 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 the higher corporate model is the model for nation states, how does that play out on a global scale? You know, I I, I it's hard for me to answer this question. I I think that you can duck it. Um, <laughs> When I was much younger, I thought that the nation state would fade and um, that multinational corporations would become, I mean, this is 100 years ago, multinational corporations would become the, the, the real powers that move the world. But they failed. They failed. They failed because of inefficiency. They failed because of greed. They failed because they, they did not. They, they did not take the interests of um, everyone into con into account. You know, so if you look at today's... Too shareholder-focused. I wonder if it's changing with the move to stakeholder-focused rather than shareholder, but yes, I agree with you. Right, and and I, I certainly don't see any change coming out of Silicon Valley with these new age sorts of organizations. I think that they, you know, the biggest problem I think that we have in so many countries is the, the income disparity that exists and the... And the inability for some people to have futures. So uh, so I think, I, what, what I do think is, is, is interesting in the example of hire is that, first of all, they trust the people. And, and, and I think Switzerland does that as well with the way in which the voting, voting takes place on everything, right? Um, so there's a great deal of trust in people to, to be effective participants in a, in, a, in, a, in a political process. And there's a very clear focus on what they want to achieve. And there's been 35 years of consistent trust in, 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 in the workforce and a belief in the talent of the people there. And I think that over time, what that's done is that's led to the ability of people to advance their own situations. You know, they, they become people who are normally would have been in a traditional organization would have been on the margins of society because they lacked the educational credentials or because they lacked the connections. The, the, the ability to be autonomous and to start things on a, on a small in, investment has allowed, you know, smart, hardworking people to succeed. I, I, so that's, that's a good outcome. I, I'm generally a, a, a great believer in, in the notion that small is better for structures, um, uh, not just in times of innovation, but also because of the nature of the way people treat each other in small structures versus big structures. I think smaller structures are healthier in interpersonal relationships, whether they're in organizations or societies. I'm going to take a twist on your question, as I want to do, Ben. I am not sure that there is an optimal model visible yet for country governance, because I think it's context-related in the same way I think that the optimal model for company governance is also context-related, partly speed, partly size, partly um, environment. I think I'm, I'm, I'm going to twist it and say that my faith both looking at history and looking around me, but I'm slightly biased in this because as someone who starts companies, I believe in the power of the individual. I'm going to say that I think that I think it depends a great deal on leadership. Just because one country has a leader that people are unhappy with doesn't mean the structure of the country or the systems within it are wrong. Uh, similarly, I think because a country is successful, I think one has to look terribly closely at who's driving the success both over time and currently to understand whether it's the individuals that are within that structure that are making something unwieldy work, or is it 
um, the structure itself, which is predispos predisposed towards producing good leadership and therefore good results. I'm more a believer in good leadership, whether it's in corporate environments or in uh, country governance than I am in the structures, because I've seen bad structures work and I've seen good structures fail, both in corporates and in countries. So I, I care a great deal about leadership. One of the things, one of the reasons I spend so much time at the school, one of the reasons that I like coming back here and, and something I very much enjoyed about my time when I was here was it's about leadership. It's about creating, creating good global citizen leaders. I think that's, I think that's crucial. I think I wouldn't put my faith in structures. I would put my faith in individuals. I agree with that. I think that um, that we need to look at um, w the role of people to be able to play a leadership role, not only at the top of the organization, but throughout the, the throughout the organization. And um, my sense is that when 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 we work with organizations who aspire to be to be like hire to adopt some variation on Rendon Hui or one of the the, the, the the similar models. One of the problems we run into almost always is that they're unprepared to give autonomy to their people and the people are unprepared to accept autonomy if it's given to them, right? So, and, and that's largely because the perception is, is that leadership doesn't take place throughout the organization. And, and uh, you know, I think what, what I've learned from Zhang Wei Min is he says, we're, we're an organization of leaders. You know, every, these people are all running small businesses, some of which are not so small, many of which are quite successful. And they need that needs to be reinforced. And then I go back to the ideal example. And one of the things Dave Kelly used to say was his job was as CEO, as the leader, was to reinforce the confidence of the people in the organization to, 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 to make the right decisions. But I think you're also reinforcing my point about the fact that if you don't have a leader like that, it's not going to happen in the organization. That's right. It is, it is important for the leader to be aware that they need leadership right. at all levels of the organization. So if we go back to the broader innovation question, for me, I'm, I'm a big believer in top-down leadership. Not, not, you know, dictatorial, not oppressive. But if you don't have strong top-down, self-assured top-down leaders, then you cannot allow bottom-up to occur because the, the leaders become um, intimidated or threatened by the, by the suggestions. So you need, you need people yep. at the top who are secure in their own right, confident. confidence and who are enthusiasts for, 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 for autonomy. And so, so that's going to determine how organization boundaries get set and how they operate. Is that how you would define the leadership in China? Well, that's a, that's a very different level of complexity. <laughs> I, mean, I, I think, you know, and it's a political leadership. I don't know, could I make that? I don't think that's the role of political leadership in any country that I, that I know of. But I do think it is in, in, in more, you know, in, in more... But, but le leadership more at, a, at a country level is just as important, is it not? Oh, yeah, I think so, too. It, it, yeah. I think Bill's referring to the systems underneath. Um, um, the complexity of politics in any country is such that you can't necessarily assume that everybody's united in a particular goal or vision because there are many visions and many goals. You have competing parties, you have competing people within parties, you have systems within the systems, you have autonomous bits that fight this, with each this other. This is what business people so that easy. become politicians always underestimate, isn't it? Yeah, right. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. 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 It, I mean, you, you do get, I think there are certain types of people who run businesses who have the capacity for this openness and this ability to deal with complexity underneath them that, that, that might survive in that environment. But if, 
if it's it was the reason why not to have generals running countries too. If you're if you're used to a certain type of hierarchy and an assumption about how the um, orders would flow down and 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 follow what was required by the top, then that doesn't work in almost any political system that I'm aware of. Other than the fact that you both work at IMD, another thing that sort of unites you both is that you lived for a long period in China and you witnessed mm -hmm. the economic miracle that has taken place over the last you know, 30, 40 years. Is that economic miracle stalling? And if so, why? So I think there are some structural issues that have to be, that, that, that everybody has known about for a long time. Starts with the demographics of the country. You have an aging population. You, you, I, I think that that's, that's not going to go away in, in the short run. I also think that it's proven harder. You have an economy that was built originally, the modern economy, starting in 1979-1980, built on um, export with an export orientation. It's harder to build a domestic market, takes more time and, and, and the like than, than anyone thought. It's happening now, but it's, but it's been a while. So my sense, and, and the other thing is, is we build an export uh, oriented economy, you sort of hope that your customers are going to grow and we're not, you know, the rest of the world is not growing either. So I think that there are, you know, important, what I would call structural and demographic reasons for the, for the present slump. To add to that, there's also a natural cycle. It, 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 they've, they've gone through an extraordinary expansion with, yeah. with all the funding coming in from overseas and the growth in population and the extraordinary improvements internally to allow both, I'm not going to say the, the, the feat of poverty, but the, 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 the re huge reduction in the numbers of people surviving on very little. Um, so I, I think the, the, the governance of the country is in, a, in a place that's so large and so complex has been, really been quite extraordinary over, over many years. But we're now at a cycle, a stage in their own cycle where there are other things to be sorted out. There's slightly less capital available. There are concerns overseas in terms of um, um, how the country is perceived. Internally, there are questions about uh, the way the country's governed and the way just certain decisions are made, um, which partly happens when things slow down and there isn't this sense that everybody can do fine and it doesn't matter what the government's doing because we're all going to be better off than we were before. I think all of these things lead to a natural slowdown. I don't think it's something I would worry about from a global perspective. There is the issue of the internal debt problem and the fact that, uh, and the possibility that the um, non-performing loans in some of the larger regional banks are never actually going to be paid back um, because the developments have been made. But I think I think those are structural issues, which again people are aware of, both in China and abroad. And it's not the first time. And it's not the first time. No, and, and actually. Um, if you look at the history, um, their, their, their history is so far a lot better than, say, Argentina. So I'm not worried yet about, about yeah. China. I mean, could I, could I joke? So I, I think, so I first moved to China in 1980. I've been there every year since. If you look at China through that period of time, what has happened today is, would have been unimaginable in 1980. Absolutely unimaginable. Quite extraordinary. Right. And so I think, you know, one of the great headlines of the late 20th century, early 20. First century, but certainly late twentieth century, was was the, the 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 movement of China, the, the the development of China into a modern nation state. And a modern nation state, I don't think it could have happened if it was just individual provinces working working in an autonomous fashion. So I think you need that galvanize. You needed that, they needed that galvanizing force. Since the onset of the one-child family policy in in nineteen eighty, the, the, the you could forecast that there was going to be a plateauing of growth in the economy due to the reduction of, uh, of, of 
people of consuming and producing age. That we, we're, we're there now. I have also learned never to underestimate what the Chinese people can do. And my sense is that um, China will come out of this fine. I, I, I think um, I, I would I would not short China at any in, in, at any point. Do you think China is ready to overtake the U.S.? I, I mean, I don't think that's important. I don't. I think yeah. first of all, what numbers are we going to use? We could argue it forever. I think the fact is that China has modernized to a point where it's a global, geopolitical, economic, technological power, and I think that's the accomplishment. But it, but in a way, um, the, the U.S. and you could argue whether this is a trend that will be sustained. But the U.S. right now is 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 becoming more insular. Right? It, it's mm-hmm. it's um it's not rejected globalization but it's but it's pretty it, close <laughs> well yeah but it, elements it, of the society have it's, it's, re- it's retreating from from international organizations it's retreating from globalization does that mean that china steps in and becomes the global superpower because you said it doesn't matter but it, that that matters does it not well, i think is, china is a global superpower and i think that the, um, sorry the you know the preeminent, preeminent yeah. The preeminent. The one, well, again, it depends on what preeminent means. Yeah. I, I think, I think my, my hearts and minds versus economy and dollars, I think, are very different things. Yeah. China is much more interested in the latter, right? The Belt and Road Initiative is about creating markets for exports and Chinese business, no? Versus there's also, a, there's also a sense of history in, in, in the Belt and Road Initiative. And, um, there, there, are, there are different things going on there. But And, and China, again, I, I'm not, I, I don't think either of us are here. Um, ready to speak for China, but but what we can see is a concern at, at different levels of government for how the company's viewed, as much as, even though they pretend it's not so important, how the company's viewed, um, how it builds its its own systems internally, how it helps its own people, and uh, logically so, given how recent uh, and 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 massive the changes have been, it's it's obviously more concerned with ensuring that things are fine within China than without, and so. It's not really, I, I don't, I, I haven't seen any politician attempting to create a global leader role, uh, either as a politician or for the country, because there's always been this sense that, that um, we worry about our problems. We don't interfere with other people's problems. We don't want other people to interfere with our problems. I don't think there is this wish to have this role of um, leading global um, adjudicator over people's issues, other people's issues. Yes, perhaps the US did play that role for a while, and yes, um, elements of U.S. society uh, wish to be less involved in other people's issues for a while. But I, I think Bill's right. I think it's the wrong question. I, I think what's interesting now is to try and work out what the new world looks like with a few large stakeholders, a few smaller stakeholders, and very different ways of measuring impact and uh, influence in the world today, partly because of the difference between network effect and military effect, and partly because it is about ideas and, and concepts as much as it is about the ability to control a, um, a seaway. Right. I think we'd all be better off if the U.S. and China were in an amicable relationship. Um, everyone would benefit as a result of that. At the present time, fear is an insidious, um, hmm. uh, uh, corrosive power, and it, at least... Often in, used by politicians. Yeah, often used by politicians. And, and at a moment, at the moment, at least in, the, in, the, in North America, in the U.S., the um, it's it's on the rise. Actually, if you look at the U.S., the U.S. has never really been a wholehearted uh, embracer of a global community, except for the period between the First World War and 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 recently. So um, it's a return, I think, to some of the 
inherent conservatism of people in the center of the country who are not um, as cosmopolitan as they probably should be. Where, where does that leave Europe? So if, you know, if, if the Belt and Road Initiative is about creating a stronger economic alliance in Asia, in Africa, the United States is, you know, is, is a large domestic market and, and they're happy to just, you know, mm-hmm. become, a, you know, to subsist mm-hmm. with but being themselves and they don't have, you know, they don't have so many difficult neighboring countries to deal with and they've got a large domestic market. Where does that leave Europe? Where where does Europe sit in this two-polar world? So I've always been enthusiastic about Europe playing a larger role in the world than it is at present, okay? I, I would like it to be more relevant. I think that it has historically been a source of values and, 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 and reflection that, that, that the other two great powers have not, you know, been interested in. And I think that, but I, but I worry about Europe playing that role because I don't know what, what Europe is any longer and I don't right. know where, where it stands. And, and it seems to be perpetually stuck between um, being aspiring to be a great power and not being able to execute. One of the strengths of Europe is exactly what causes that issue. It's not one country. It's not a superpower. It's not a, um, a, a nation state per se. I think it's one of the charms and values of Europe. I think one of the things that's great about um, this part of the world is the multitude of languages, approaches, cultures, uh, and ways of thinking and doing things. I think that that's what creates the richness of Europe um, and the richness of the experience of being here. Now, it does make it difficult to make a decision in one place, and it does make it difficult to have a European viewpoint. I'm not 100% sure the world needs it. I, I like I like the multitude of, of I, I like the fact that every now and then you do get a European point of view because there are certain things that many of certainly the Western European states sometimes less so the Central European states agree on. I think I quite like the variety of discussions that take place about any points that are in Europe. I like that that diversity of opinion. I think it's what what is the charm of Europe. I also think that being smaller makes it easier to 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 manage if you think of the higher model this multitude of different approaches to problem solving and different products that occur. Um, I think if there was a uniformity of... Doesn't that require a, a thin federal layer to sit above it? We, which we, is kind of de- de- devolving as we speak. We, we kind of have a thin federal layer. And the question is how thin it gets. I, I think there, is, there are structural issues. There's the obvious structural issue of having a united currency and, and, and a disunited uh, fiscal system. So I think there are lots of things about Europe that don't make sense uh, in the way it's structured. And, and also there's, there are different goals from different European leaders and it changes when the leaders change about what Europe should be. The vision from the 1950s was relatively loose. The vision from some now, uh, Macron, I guess, leader amongst them is the United States of Europe. And, and, and not everybody shares that view. Some of the newer members, even less than some of the older members. So I think, I think there are structural issues that make it very unlikely that Europe becomes this single voice, single culture place that some people would like. But I don't think that's a bad thing. I quite like the diversity. But the problem with Europe, I guess, is in the absence of having these new digital age giant businesses you know this is it's a risk of becoming a sort of tourist destination for chinese people isn't it over time it is a tourist destination for chinese people <laughs> no, but i mean that as being the sort of the only engine of growth incidentally like, yeah. i think that's not a bad thing because <laughs> i think that you know it's just it's not this a bad thing but it's just like you know, <laughs> it, it, it's difficult to find nations that rely solely on tourism that, that are really prosperous well, right? i think i think 
expose well, one of the things we have to we talked about needing to expose people in the center of of America to what's going on in the world around them. We also need to expose people in every country to what's going on around them. And, yep. and um, everybody should um, travel. And 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 I think that um, the fact that. We have a lot of tourists coming from China today as a victory. It's a it's a huge achievement. You would never have thought of that, in when the when the reforms began. Um, so it's a sign of success. I I I think that Europe plays or could play an important role in moderating the excesses of the other superpowers, and I think that that would be a um, a, a healthy. A healthy outcome, in particular at the moment, with with what's going on in the in the in the U.S. I think that there needs to be a broader view of of uh, how we work together. So I'm going to att- attempt badly to sort of summarize some of the things we've talked about. Just to, uh, so team size matters. Smaller teams, in general, perform better than better teams for many reasons. Under certain contexts, yeah, <laughs> this is a possible thing to try to wrap up. And um, definitely the 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 nature of competition is changing much more to arenas than industries. Innovation is rising in important vis-a-vis strategy and innovation can be a repeatable process. Business models matter so much more than they did in the past. China is at a point where it's slowing down, but as you said, you, you can never underestimate it and it will necessarily you know, start to exercise greater sort of geopolitical influence my last question to you both is that I think you could argue that we're, you know, we're at a point in history which is, you know, almost like pre-Reformation, right? Where we've got, I mean, China is like almost the equivalent of like discovery of the new world, right? At the same time as you've got massive change in information flow with the internet and so on. And I want you to be bullish for a second and, and say what's positively will the world change from this point on, starting with you, Ian. I, I, I'm generally very optimistic. I'm generally very positive. I said in a previous podcast that it's not technologies that create problems. It's the people who use them and the way you use them. And I refuse to be a new Luddite and say that um, we live in a world where all of these things are scary. Um, I, I, I wish Elon Musk wouldn't keep saying that AI is um, going to harm us all. I think because of our ability to see more, know more, understand more, I'm totally in agreement with Bill that knowledge is, is helpful and experimentation leads to more knowledge. We simply are better able and better equipped than we ever have been to understand complexity and come up with solutions for it. And so even if individual leadership or um, geopolitical regional issues or changes in demographics create challenges for both countries and the world as a whole for the next 20 to 50 years, I am... I am totally a believer that we now are better equipped than ever before to face those challenges and come up with solutions. And I, I'm, I'm very excited to see what happens. I, my, my daughters are now at an age where they're entering the sphere at, at 26 and 28. Um, one's in private equity, one's running her own company. And I love the way they talk and think about the world. Um, and I, I'm really looking forward to seeing what that generation comes up with. So I am absolutely an optimist. I think we're on the eve of of an age where there's a technological revolution, series of technological revolutions that will change everything, change the way we live, change the way we interact, change the 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 the, the level of change will be unprecedented, uh, both because of um, connectivity um, and, and hyper mobility, and also the genomics revolution. All these things taking place at the same time, I think, will provide the potential 
for huge landscape change. The, the, what I would hope is that our organizations are up to the challenge that, that, and leadership, that, that they are able to recognize the opportunities, uh, move fast enough. Um, and this is why the, the teaming issues that we talked about are, are, are so important. And I think that we have to provide opportunities for our entire population, not just the, the winners of the past economic uh, era. And if we can do that, I think we'll have unprecedented success. So I'm, optim- I'm bullish. Ian, Bill, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Oh, pleasure. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank, thank you for having us. Thank you for listening to Structural Shifts by Aperture. To learn more about our Aperture community, visit aperturehub.co. We are strategy for the networked age. Until next time.